you have your Bibles, we're ready for Mark chapter 12 today, second half. Hey, we, um, I just, when I, when I moved here from, from Yucca Valley, I lived right next door to the, the largest marine base in the world, 982 miles um, square miles. Now there's more people population wise in Camp Pendleton in San Diego, but landmass, um, 29 Palms is the largest marine base in the world. They do all of their live fire training exercises in 29 Palms. And the, the way the Marines uh, train and practice, everything is live. Real ammo, real bombs, real planes. Everything is done with, with live rounds. And so it's all done out there in 29 Palms. So naturally, most of the people that were in our church and a lot of the friends that I have from back home that were in our Bible study and in our home and you know became our close personal friends are all Marines. And as you guys know, there's always this... This banter back and forth, depending on which branch you served in. Here, it's Army. There's so many, because we have the Army bases here. So, But, you know, like, which which one of the branches, whether you're in the Army or the Navy or the Marine Corps or, you know, Coast Guard or um, Air Force, which which one's tougher? Which which fighting force is, is better? And they're always going back and forth and having friendly banter. And so, you know, I was always on the side of the Marines because we was always around so many Marines. But I used to keep in my office a picture and and it's a sailor and and he's standing on the edge of a large boat a large tanker or whatever they're called a you know aircraft tanker and he's standing there and with some other men and and you just see the rail and and he's got tears coming down his face and he's crying and and people would ask me you know pastor chris do you keep that picture of that sailor in your office making are you making fun of him you know for the for the marines or something and i tell him no I'm not making fun of him. And if you read the caption under it, I said, I keep that up there in my office as a daily reminder for me that, that he's on a ship and he's been, he's been overseas for 12 months and he's on a ship and the ship is nearing the, the coast in San Diego. And the, the boat is about 200 yards off the shore. And for the first time in a year, he sees his family, his wife and his kids standing on the shore waiting for him to come home. And he's crying because he sees his family. And I said, I keep that up there for me as a reminder of the men and the women today that are in other, in other countries that are serving, that are fighting, so that every time I take my kids to a baseball game, every time I go and I experience the freedoms that we have, I don't take those for granted, that, that I appreciate and, and, and I thank those who are serving our country for that very reason. Amen? Amen. All right. So Mark chapter 12. We, we left off last week. We, we finished about half of it. So we're going to pick it up in verse number 28 today. Just kind of a little background to catch up where we are. Um, we started in 11 with the last week of Jesus's life. The first 10 chapters of the, of the gospel of Mark deal with the, the entire period of Jesus's life up until his last week. Beginning in chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, deal with the last seven days of Jesus' life and then a little bit post-resurrection. And so in this last period, it begins by Jesus on the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday, the Sunday before the Friday that he he would die on a cross. He, He got on a donkey and he entered in Jerusalem. And for the first time, he allowed the, the people to worship him publicly as Messiah, as God. And so Jesus, as you know, was the the Passover lamb that was come to take away the sins of the world. And so we talked about last week that in order to bring a sacrifice to God at Passover, which every person who came to worship God during the during the Passover time was required to do, the, the, the Passover lamb had to be 
had to be what? It had to be perfect. It had to be without spot or blemish. You couldn't offer to God something that was second best or something that wasn't perfect or had a, you know, your lamb broke the leg. And so, you know, you have the two lambs out there. They're exactly the same. And you say, well, I'm going to give one of them to the, to the Lord. And which one is the Lord's? Well, they're both the same. They're perfect. You know, and you go out the next day and you come home and you say, oh, honey, the Lord's lamb broke his leg today. You know, because the one that broke his leg, that's the one we're going to then offer to the Lord in second best. But God wouldn't allow it. And Jesus being the Passover lamb who had come to take away the sins of the world, he had to be as the lamb. He had to be perfect. He had to be without spot or blemish. So, so he is basically, um, God is taking the, the lamb that he's going to offer as a sacrifice for your sins and my sins. And, and as the priest would have to inspect these lambs, and we know the story, right? People would bring these perfect lambs and the priest would inspect them and say, oh, this one's not perfect. But we have over here some, some perfect lambs pre-approved and we're selling them at, and ripping people off. And that's why Jesus went in and he overturned the money changers and the tables in the, in the temple. And now God, his lamb, his son, Jesus Christ, is on display for the whole world to see so that he can be found blameless. And what we saw in the second half of 11 and leading up to 12 is all of these questions and tests. And and he is being checked to see if he is without spot or blemish and if he's perfect. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they're coming to him and they're they're asking him these tough questions. And in the middle of chapter 12, we'll get to it. The test is going to be over somewhere in the middle of the week there. And it's over. He's passed. And then Jesus is going to turn and he's going to give the questions to them. And then we'll get to the last few days of Jesus's life. So in chapter, it brings us to where we are in chapter 12 in verse 28. And it says, then one of the scribes, having heard them reasoning together, perceived that he had answered them well and asked, which is the first commandment? Now, the scribe, it says that he perceived that Jesus answered them well. In another place in Mark, it says Jesus does all things well. And so, you know, they, they didn't bring the, they had to really think. They knew that Jesus was not the JV team. He wasn't, you know, he was, he was good at what he did. He was, he was wise. And every time they asked him a question, he answered very well. And then we try to bring him these questions and these traps. But again, they, they didn't come to him with the, with the JV question because they knew that they were wasting their time and that they had to really think about how they were going to try to trap him and spend time. And so these questions that we get that were presented, they, they, they were much thought went into them. And they actually came up with a couple good ones, a couple ones that if they had come to me and, and asked me the same question, I would have been stuck. I would, I would not have known how Jesus would have got out of it. And, and this is, is one of them. And they say to Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? Now, we, we think of the Ten Commandments, right? And, and just a few of them. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not um, commit adultery. You shall not covet. You, sh- you should honor your father and mother. You should uh, take no other gods before the Lord God. You should not use the Lord God's name in vain. And yet, in, in this question, there's more to it than that. Because as we know, the, the Jews and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and, and the scribes, they had codified the law of Moses. And they had taken all the rules through, through the, the law of God, and they, they codified them into 613 different laws that had to be followed. 365 negative and the rest being positive. 365, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, and the rest positive. So really the question encompassed all 613 rules that, that God laid out for his people. And so when they said, what is the greatest commandment? You think, oh man, they really got him here. What if he says, don't lie? Well, then what about don't steal? 
Well, what if Jesus says a big one is like, don't murder? What if he says don't murder? Well, then what about don't covet or don't commit adultery? How is Jesus going to answer? What is the greatest commandment? And how is Jesus going to get out of this? And Jesus gives the one commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul that covers all the other commandments. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, are you going to commit murder? Are you going to steal? Are you going to lie? Are you going to commit adultery? You're not going to do all those things. And so on all these things, and the Bible says that in this one thing, love, all the law and the prophets are summed up. All the law and the prophets are contained within this one idea of, of us as Christian people to love. Love God first and, and, and love himself. You know, and so the, in marriage, it's the same way. You know, in marriage, Jesus gives, God gives one rule for each of us. One for the husband, one for the wife. So I don't know why your marriages have trouble. All you got to do is follow one simple rule that God gave you. You guys can't do that? So he says for the husbands, love your wife, says Christ loved the church. And he says for the wife, respect your husband or submit to your husband. And then in summary, it says, why uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So one rule for the wife, respect your husband. One rule for the, for the husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Real simple. Marriage is simple. Now, as we know, right, it's not. Marriage is, is anything but simple and it's, it's impossible. And, you know, women are impossible to figure out, you know. Just kidding, ladies. Um, and it's true. And, and, and how to please them and what to do. And, and, and yet you have all these things you got to remember all the time. Like, okay, underwear off the floor, trash out, card, text, love, this, flowers, all these things I got to remember. You know, and it's like, the, you know, if, if one thing was the most important, if, okay, I just got to keep my underwear off the bathroom floor and, you know, our marriage will be good and it won't tell her that I don't love her and don't care for her because she sees my underwear on the floor. And that's what it means, by the way, guys. When your wife sees your underwear on the floor, it means you don't love her. You, you don't, you know, you don't care for her. You don't, it says more than what you think it says. So the, the one thing, so God just takes it and he simplifies it. And he says, the one thing that's going to cover all the other rules he says, guys, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And if you love your wife as Christ loved the church, then naturally you're going to do all those things. And, 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 and then the other thing is in that, God created women with a number one need. And so your job as a husband is to minister or meet her number one need or desire that's created by God. Remember what God said in Genesis? Male and female, I have created them. Now, I know some of you ladies said God blew it that day when he created these lughead men that stink and they grunt and they're, they're not very emotional. And, but I want to tell you, God didn't blow it. He created your man just the way that he is. He created men just the way that we are. He created women just the way we are. And men, when you think that, you know, your wife is too emotional and God created her that way. Okay. So God created a male and female. He created them. And so, so they're perfect. But each one has a different, unique need. And, and so I'm getting in, I'm preaching on marriage. I wasn't even a part of the sermon. I'm going to have to move on. So the point being this, that there's, there is that one thing that God gives us that covers the rest. And, and for you wives, it's, it's to, to, to minister to your, your husband's need to feel respected and, and, and to honor his leadership in your home. And if you do that, it'll motivate him to love you. And guys, if you love your wives, it'll motivate her to respect you. And so one rule in marriage that covers all the rest of the complicated part of life. And then one, one thing in life that God, that Jesus points out specifically as the number one commandment is to love him. And, and, and then he says, let's read what Jesus says. And he tells us in verse, chapter, verse 29, it says, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Turn with me really quick. I want you guys to give you a little lesson um, in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Jesus is quoting word for word from Deuteronomy 6.4. In Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we have the same... Um, People think that, that there's a God of the Old Testament because you find the wrath and the problems. And then you think there's a God of the New Testament, but that's not true. The heart of God for his people and for you and for I has been the same since Adam and Eve in the garden. God wants a relationship with his people. He wants a relationship based on love. And, and so here we have it in, in, the, in, the, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the Torah, in the first five books of Moses. And, and we have God's heart. And this scripture to this day is the banner scripture for the Jews. It is their mantra. It is their number one. It is the, the everything scripture, the great Shema. Everybody say the great Shema. So the word Shema is the first word in Deuteronomy 6.4. The word Shema is a Hebrew word that just means hear. So it's, it's hear, hear, listen, pay attention. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so the word one in the great Shema is the word akkad. It's, a, it's, a, it's the Hebrew word that means um, compound unity. There's another Hebrew word when it speaks of singularity one. And, and that, that word is yakid. And that means one by itself. But when, when God said a husband and wife or a husband shall, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become akkad, one flesh. It's a compound unity. And so in the very Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's the nature that it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the triune God is right in the, in the verse. And then he says, therefore, hero, or I'm sorry, in verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Exactly what Jesus is going to quote and say in the New Testament, the greatest commandment. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You serve one God. There is no other gods before him or after him. And love him with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then he says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Then you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So, this is, again, this is the theme scripture, the mantra, the, the, the staple scripture for the Jew. Let me see that picture. I just got back from Israel, and I, I was taking pictures of Jews when they weren't looking. They didn't know it. You know, I was like, so he doesn't know that I'm taking that picture. But um, so at the time of prayer, and it's very common in the airport, you'll see it all over. When you're in Israel, you'll see it. So this is the guy that's sitting in the seat in front of me. And it was time for, and you can see another guy there on the right. He stood up. And so wherever there was Jews on the plane, they stood up. They got out their prayer shawls. That's what this is, the prayer shawls. They put on that. See that box that's on his forehead? That thing that's on his forehead? And see those straps, those, those leather straps that are on his arm? Those are called, the, the box on his head is called a phylactery. And within that box contains a scripture that, that he will write out and place within that box because of Deuteronomy 6, um, the great Shema here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that you shall bind them on your forehead, you shall write them on your hand. And, you, and, and, and the whole thing is for us today too. It's very valid for us today. God said that when you rise up, you shall think of them. When you come in, when you go out, when you, when you, when you, when you teach them to your children and, and everything you do to keep the word of God next to you. And so they've taken it very literally. Now, that, so they have that phylactery and they put it on their forehead. They bind this, this scripture on. And then, and then on that last one, it says on the doorposts of your house. And so everywhere you go in Israel, you'll see one of these. It's called um, 
a mezuzah and the mezuzah is it's it's on the inside the back side it has a hollow place where you write that scripture deuteronomy 6 4 um four through nine and you put it in here and then you place this on your door and every time you go in you touch it and you 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 touch it now god's intent right and i think they've missed it right you could take that down i think they've missed it what god's intent was for that you should place them on your forehead. You should take the word of God and you should place it on your forehead and your hand. So would you guys feel a little better next week if I came with my Bible like duct taped to my forehead? I have my own phylactery and just roll like this and that would make me like more, hey, there's my pastor. Look at that. He keeps the word of God between his eyes. Is that what God intended? Not really, right? God intended that you would take it and put it upon the tablets of your heart, that you would take God's word and you would imply it to your life, that you would teach it to your children when you rise, when you lay down, when you come in, when you go out, and that it would be number one in your life. And that's why it is so important to the Jews to this day. And, and this is where Jesus quotes as the number one commandment to love the Lord, your God, and then impart this to your children, to your family. And I'll tell you, I've been, since I've been in Tooele, I've seen tons of people. One of the blessings about being here is legitimately there is people and, and, and I don't take any credit for it because I know that God was going to save those people regardless if I came or not. I just happened to get to come and be a part of it. But I've seen people come since I've been here who were going to hell, who asked Jesus in their heart or were born again and got saved and, and, and are walking. And I've seen people who, you know, whose lives just go around the same mountain over and over again. And we all know those people and they just struggle and they just continue to struggle. And then I've seen other people who, who maybe have had some struggles and they've, they've, they're growing and they're blossoming and, and God is changing their lives and they're seeing fruit and they're getting blessed and things are changing dynamically in their lives. And not only that, but now they're getting to the point in a short time where God is using them to tell other people about Jesus and invite other people to church. And, and you see this, this term that in the Bible, all oh, fruit, fruit, and there's fruit in their lives. And I'll tell you that the, just the truth. The consistency between all these people who, who begin to bear fruit in their life, you, you find the same thing. It's the people who understand what Jesus said here, and, and they begin to read and study and, and, and put the word of God in their lives. And those that I've seen in the last three years since I've been here that have got it are the ones that, that start a daily devotion. They start getting in God's word on a regular basis. They're pouring God's word in every day. And they've really bought into and believed the idea that when we teach, read your Bible and pray every day. And those that are doing that, I'm really, honestly, I'm being just very truthful. I'm seeing them grow. I'm seeing God change their lives. All the way across the board, that's consistent for those who get in the word of God for themselves, who have a daily bread. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. And our daily bread is the word of God being put in your life daily. And so get into some kind of devotional life. Get, it, get in a habit of reading the word every day. Not being, not, the point is not becoming some biblical scholar and, and, and being able to answer every Bible question anybody's ever asked you. It's just a consistent diet of reading the word and your life will grow and change. Amen? Okay, back in Mark, it says, um, and he said, and the second is like it. That you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and there is no other commandment greater than these. You know, I want to tell you that the, the, the opposite of this life of loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your life being wrapped up. So that means that your identity is in Christ. Who you are, what you do, you, you're not ashamed of that. You're, you're not half on the fence, and church is not just something that you do or, or go to on Sundays or occasionally when you feel like it. 
But who you are is a follower and a disciple and a believer in Jesus Christ. And, and you're, you're wrapped up and you're centered in Jesus. The opposite of that is self-centeredness. And really, that's where so many of us find ourselves, is, is where our lives are focused on self. And, and, and we're self-centered. Our identity's in ourself and who we are and what we have and where we go and, and, and what we can afford and what we can do. And, and we, we lose our focus on Jesus as our identity when we become self-centered. So as an example, God gives you the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, you guys know the story, right? King Solomon was allowed in the flesh, in his self-centeredness, to reach the pinnacle, the height of everything the world has to offer. And Solomon, over and over and over again, through, through the book of Ecclesiastes, he reaches the top of another adventure in life, whether it's money, whether it's pleasures, sensual pleasures, whether it's finances, whether it's um, education, science, whatever it is, wisdom. He reaches the top, and when he gets there, he decides... Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That it's frustrating. And I'll tell you what, this life is frustrating when you're self-centered. This life is going to end up frustrating when you're focused on yourself and, and, and you miss here what Jesus said. And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And have your life wrapped up in Jesus. And, and your identity in Jesus. And who you are and what you do. Be about Jesus. And then he said to love the, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And then Jesus qualifies it and says there's no commandment greater than these. Hey, turn with me really quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Again, this is just another place in the, in the Bible you guys should be familiar with. No, it's called the love chapter. Hebrews chapter, chapter 11 is what? The faith chapter. Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. So we got the love boat, we got the love chapter, we got the faith chapter, and all we need is a faith boat. In chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, God lays out for us his desire for love. You know, when you read 1 Corinthians 13, it can be very convicting. As far as this is what God says is love for you and me, and what God's love is, and what God's love wants, and what's, what is God's real living out of love in your life. And so we, okay, I'm supposed to love people. I'm supposed to love the Lord. But what does that look like? How do I actually practically live that out? Do I, do I just tell you guys all the time, oh, I love you. And then, and then I don't just talk bad about you when you leave and I never do nothing nice for you and I never have any action. You know, if you wake up in the morning and you tell your wife, oh, honey, I love you. And then you treat her bad the rest of the day. Don't expect, you know, at 10 o'clock at night that she's going to feel loved. She, she's not. She's, she's, you know, love is action. Love is not, is not emotion. Now, love is something that you do. It's a verb. It's, it's, it's all the things throughout the, do that, the day that I do to show love, to actually love, to have action to love. Now, there's emotion involved in love, right? When you get emotionally involved and you, and you fall in love with somebody, there's lots of emotion that, that goes with that. But love itself is not an emotion. It's an action. And so here's the action of love that, that Jesus lays out for us. And as you guys know, we have in our English language, we basically just have one word for love. And it describes everything, right? I, I, I love hot wings. And I love me some hot wings. And I love my wife. And I love Jesus. And I love Cheetos. You know, it's the, it's the same word. Do I really love Cheetos like I love my wife? No, obviously not. But, but we only have one word. Well, the, the Greek language has different words that, that, that actually help 
describe a little better those different forms of what kind of love we're talking about. And the highest of those, as we know, is the agape love. And this is the type of love that, that God describes for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is this agape love and what it means. Let's take a look at it. Because if, if you have to, if you want to understand and you want to be obedient to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, it would help to understand what, what that means. In verse 13, it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. And whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is imperfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Unless you're listening to Creflo Dollar. Then the greatest of these is faith. You gotta have faith to have love. So back to, to Mark chapter 12. And it says... The last thing, to love your neighbor. Last thing on this, you guys, then we're going to move on. To love your neighbor as yourself. I, I want to just comment really briefly with, within the Christian community, within the Christian church. Jesus says here that the most important thing in your Christian walk is to love, right? It's to love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And I think sometimes we, we get this twisted. And I think we think the most important thing is that we have good doctrine, that we're right, that we have the right Bible answer and that we're on the right side of the discussion of predestination versus free, free will and mid-tribulation versus pre-tribulation. And, and we, 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 you know, we separate over these things, over issues of doctrine, over issues of um, philosophy, of tact, and, and we separate on all of these issues within the church and we, and we break fellowship because down the church, you know, here at Calvary, we're, you know, we're Arminius and they're Calvinists. And so, you know, but nowhere does Jesus say that, that, that the most important thing or that the issues that should divide us are issues of doctrine or of style or of, of flavor. But, but, but we should come together in love. And we just have to be careful. There are issues that divide us. Who Jesus is, essential issues of, of doctrine, who breaks fellowship with, with certain churches and people for sure. Okay? But so, so many, so much of, of us in the body of Christ that we have non-essential issues that we can disagree on and we can still fellowship together. We can still love together. We can still serve together. We can still reach out together. We can, we're still within the body of Christ. And, and, and that, that in that, the most important thing is love. It's not doctrine. It's not music choice. It's not being right. It's not baptism. As we go on, it says, So the scribe said to him, 
the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God and there is no, no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. And so what's interesting is this, this scribe kind of got it. And Jesus says to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now, I don't care how far you are from the kingdom of God. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're not in the kingdom of God. And if, and if you're not in the kingdom of God, there's only one other place you're going to go. And, that, and that's to, to hell for eternity. And, and so it's a scary place to be almost in the kingdom of God. And so why was this guy there but not in and remember King Agrippa? Paul went to King Agrippa and he finally got an opportunity to, to, to preach the gospel as he had wanted to do to King Agrippa. And at the very end of it, King Agrippa said, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And, and, and the argument is there. I understand it. I almost believe it. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And here Jesus says to this scribe, you almost have the kingdom of God. And the difference is that the kingdom of God is entered as we surrender our heart and life 100% fully to God. And we can believe, we can understand the things in the word of God, we can come to church, we can say they're true, none of that saves you. What saves you is when you surrender your heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you guys know my testimony. When I was in eighth grade, I said the sinner's prayer after growing up in a non-Christian home my whole life, never having any God or anything in my house or anybody that believed in God in my house or in my family, had a neighbor that invited me to church. They had a, they had a youth group, 7th and 8th grade, and they had skateboard ramps out front, and we were skaters, and we went there to skate. I was a punk little kid. I probably stunk of whatever I was smoking as I, as I scrolled up to junior high youth group. Got a lot to be thankful for, for where my boys are today, thinking of where I was at their age. And... And, and at the end of two years, I liked it, and I went. I learned a lot of Bible studies. I was a memory verse champion um, in seventh grade year. And, and, you know, if I was doing something, I wanted to win. And at the end of two years, I can remember the pastor, he pulled me aside, and he said, do you want to receive Jesus in your heart as your Lord and Savior? And so, like, I knew enough now. I'd been going to this little youth group for a couple of years and was learning about God and Bible, and I didn't want to go to hell. And I, knew, and I did believe in Jesus. I thought Jesus was real and, and, and was, was God and was the one true God. But I was getting ready to start ninth grade. It was in between eighth and ninth grade. And I can remember thinking, you know what? I'm getting ready to go into high school. And there's some, some things I want to experience and I want to try and I want to do when I get to high school. And, you know, I don't want to go to hell, but I, I, I don't know that I fully want to sell out to, to Christianity and to Jesus. And, and so I prayed the prayer. And I held back. And I remember telling God, I remember where I was. I remember where I was standing. I remember what restaurant I was in when this happened. And I prayed this prayer. And I didn't surrender my life to God. And I said the words, the same words we say all the time. Jesus, come in my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. And then when the ninth grade started, and I can remember one of the first experiences in ninth grade, there was a Christian club on campus. And I thought, oh man, I'm really supposed to be a part of that. But that's social suicide if I join that Christian club. And then six years later, I'm 20 years old. My life is a complete wrecked mess, completely addicted to drugs. Life's destroyed, wasted, went through a hell of seven years that God never intended for me to go through. And by the grace of God, at 20 years old, God gave me another opportunity to ask Jesus in my heart. And, and I said the same exact prayer I said in eighth grade. 
The difference this time was that I surrendered my heart and life to Jesus Christ and I gave him fully my life. And when I was 20 years old, I was born again. And I was no longer going to hell, but I was going to heaven. And the difference was that I was no longer close. I was in the kingdom of God because I had fully surrendered my life. And so for this, this poor guy, he's, he's right there. Hopefully he does. Hopefully he goes on. He surrenders his life to Jesus. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But at this point, Jesus said, you're, you're close, but you're not in. And then in verse 35, Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said, I'm sorry, I got to highlight that last verse and then we're done. In verse 34, but after that, no one dared question him. So that's the end of Jesus's testing as the lamb of God who was to take away the sins of the world. His public, he had passed the test. He was found blameless and as the sacrifice that was acceptable, wholly acceptable unto the Lord. So that's over. And then as soon as that ends, Jesus starts asking the questions. And he said to the Pharisees, David said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is it then he has, he is his son and the common people heard him gladly. And so Jesus just gives them this, this Bible study from the old Testament, from King David to help them understand something. And it was readily known that Messiah was the son of David. That, that was a term that Messiah, that Jesus, that Messiah would be given is son of David. And, he, and Jesus points out to them that in the Jewish culture, the, the father would never call a son Lord or a position higher than himself. The father of a family in Jewish culture is always the patriarch. It don't matter if the sons are 80 and 90 years old. If dad's still alive, he's still the boss. They still, they still follow his rule. And so Jesus points out to them, how is it then that David could say to him, call him Lord, if it was his son? The only way he could do that because it was God and it was Messiah and, 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 and Jesus explains that to them. And then in verse 38, it says, then he said to them in his teachings, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogue and the best places at feasts, who devours widows houses and for pretense make long prayers that they will receive greater condemnation. And so I, I like it here because Jesus as the shepherd He's going to call some people out. You know, sometimes you got to call people out. Sometimes as a shepherd, you know, you have to be warned. You have to tell other people. You got to tell other Christians. If there's, you know, somebody that's, that's fleecing the flock of God or somebody that's, that's teaching false doctrine or leading people astray, there does come a time when you call people out by name. And so here Jesus, and if you go back in 12, you'll see in two different places where Jesus says, he told him the first time, you, you err not knowing the scriptures. You're mistaken not knowing what the word of God says. And then at the end, speaking to these same guys, he said, you greatly mistaken. Sad, sad thing for Jesus to say to you, you're greatly mistaken. And unfortunately, there's a ton of people that Jesus is going to have to say that to, that you're greatly mistaken, having not known the scriptures. And so here, after all this stuff, he finally looks at the people, the common people, like you and I that received this stuff readily. And he looked at the scribes and he said, hey, those guys over there, beware of them. Beware of their doctrine, their trouble. They're liars. They, and, and basically, what was the, the problem with the scribes? What was the issue that Jesus was addressing? It was religion. They had this outward form of religion. And they wanted to seem very religious and nice to everybody on the outside. But on the inside, they were full of dead men's bones. And then it says in verse 41, And now Jesus sat opposite the treasury, and he saw how the people put in money in the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. 
And one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a quadrant. And so he called his disciples to himself and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given into the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of the poverty put in all that she had and kept her whole livelihood. So last thing and we'll be done. Jesus is there and he's in the temple and he's, he's describing, you know, first of all, what's interesting about this part of this story is that Jesus says he's watching how they give, not what they give. Jesus is not so much concerned in what we give as much as how we give and how much it costs us. This would have been, you know, we're, we're, we're somewhere between Sunday and Friday. We know the events that are going to happen. In chapter 13, in the next chapter, Jesus is going to head over to the Mount of Olives. He's going to give what we call the Olivet Discourse. That's where the disciples come to him and they ask him very plainly, Jesus, when are you going to come back? And Jesus begins to explain to them the scenario that's going to be played out when it's time for him to get back. They're going to leave the Mount of Olives. They're going to head back up to the the other side through the Kidron Valley where the Temple Mount is. They're going to pass the Temple Mount and they're going to enter a house where they're they're going to celebrate the Last Supper. Leave the Last Supper, and he's going to go back onto the Mount of Olives, where there they're going to, Judas will come and betray him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so somewhere between there, he's at this point, and he's in the synagogue, midweek service. Maybe he's at their, their Wednesday night service. And there he's observing how the people are giving. And one widow comes in, first the, the rich men come, and they give tons of money. So they got their, their $20, $100 bills rolled in a circle with rubber bands around them, you know, and they're coming in and they're, they're dropping them in the plate in the side of everybody where everybody can see. And then you have this widow who comes and humbly puts in two mites. And it doesn't say that Jesus told the whole crowd or Jesus told the whole group. He says he called his disciples, his 12. Judas would have still been a part at that time. And he would have called them together. And he wanted to teach him something. And he said, he called his disciples in verse 43 and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. Now, she put in two mites. A mite is one one hundredth penny. When we used to go to Israel back like in the early 90s, you could actually still buy mites in Israel. And they were like, you get a hundred of them for a penny. And she puts in two of them, which makes a quadrant, whatever that is. And other guys are putting in tons of of money, thousand dollars worth of, you know, equivalent money in the offering. And Jesus says she put in way more than they did. It doesn't make any sense. How? Well, no, no, she didn't. Jesus, she dropped in a couple pennies and that guy, he was dropping in Franklin's. And so, but Jesus is not, he's not measuring it based on what they gave, but what it cost them. And for that woman, she had no idea where she was going to eat that day. She had no idea where she was going to, how her next meal was going to come. It cost her, she had to have so much faith that God was going to show up and do something miraculous because she gave everything that she had. And so so, sometimes, you know, we we can give and we, we give with no faith. We give with no sacrifice because we can afford it. It's what's left over. We just give a little bit and, and that's it. But Jesus is not honored because the, the principle of giving is two things. First of all, it's first fruits. Jesus wants you to give of your first fruits. Secondly, he wants it to require faith on your part to give. And so if you do all your bills and at the end of the month, you know you have this much left over. And then at the end of the month, you, you give God a portion of what's left over. God, God, God's not impressed. He's not, he's, not, he's not blessed by it. 
Because one month you go and the tires go out and you need new tires and this happens. And, and if you get to the end of this month, then you can't give to God and you don't give the Lord anything. Because you only give Him out of your abundance. You only give Him when you can afford it. But if you give Him at the beginning of the month, knowing that God is going to have to show up and do something miraculous by the 30th in order for you to meet your bills, that requires faith. And that's what this woman did. This woman gave everything she had. She didn't know how she was going to get to the end of the month. And Jesus is not, God is not impressed by those of you who make a ton of money and and give a ton of money, but in comparison to what it costs you, it's nothing because you can afford it. And it just, it just doesn't impress God. But, it, but if, it's a, if it's a gift of faith, and it's something where you're going to need God, you're going to make sacrifices. So in, in 2 Samuel, you guys can read I won't read it today, but you can read it. Go in 2 Samuel 25. King David is getting to the end of his life. And King David wants to buy a field to give to God as, an, as a place of an offering, to build an altar and offer unto the Lord. And so he goes to the guy who owns the property, and, and the guy sees him coming, and he says, King David... He says, wow. He says, you want that property? Oh, man, you're king here. You can have it. I just want to bless you, king. Take it. Please take it and do what you want with it. And David says, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. I have to buy it. I don't want to offer it to God if it doesn't cost me anything. And sometimes you guys, whether I'm talking about money or your time or your sacrifice, the things that we offer to God are not first fruits. And the things that we offer to God don't really cost us anything because it's just you know, we, we can afford it or we can, we can give it. And so there, there does require, again, what, what God requires is faith. And to give faithfully is, is to give sacrificially, is to give above and beyond, is to give when you don't know how it's going to meet. And in that, God is blessed and God, God gives it. Should I have the ushers come forward and take another offering? We won't. Let's stand. Just kidding. Some of you guys looked at me like I was serious. I'm just kidding. So a couple of things today in the, in the message that I, I want to kind of conclude with. So we can, we can turn the lights off, Mike. Um, Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so I just challenge you guys with the, that as you leave this week. That make God the number one thing in your life. Make God the, the, the first in your life. And, and, and make your focus not on... So many things that we focus on, but your identity in Christ in that, in loving God. And a part of that is being in the word each week for yourself, having personal relationship and personal devotion where you spend time getting to know God through the study of his word. And, and God told us in the word this week to, that, you know, he, he's, he, he watches what we give. And I'm not talking about just money because so, so much of what we give to God it, that is part of our lives and our sacrifice and our heart and our trust. But the principle is that God wants you to give to him first before you give to anybody else of your life, of your time, of your talents, of your money. And secondly, God wants you to give in such a way that it costs you something to give in such a way that it requires faith. It requires God to show up in your life and do something in order for it to work. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And Father, I pray that if there's anybody here, Lord, as that scribe who was close to the kingdom of God, but they weren't in the kingdom. And Lord, now, even as I pray, Lord, that they would surrender their heart and life to you, Jesus. And they would repeat this prayer. And let, let's repeat it together out loud as a, as a church family. Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. Be my Lord and Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I surrender 100% of my life. 
I give you all my life. I need a Savior. I need a Redeemer. Jesus, change my life for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.